If you've got a Bible, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Revelation chapter 2. This is week 2 of our series. Uh, We're calling Red Letters. The whole point of this series, in case you're just jumping in uh, today, again, week 2. You can grab uh, week 1 off of uh, our website or podcast and catch up. Um, But the whole point of this series, what we're trying to do is, hey, what does Jesus think about the church? Um, what are, what are Jesus' thoughts about the church? Where is Jesus leading the church? Who is he asking us to be? What is supposed to be distinct and peculiar about us um, from all peoples uh, in our city or uh, even in the earth? And so what, what does Jesus think about the church? That's what we're getting after in this series. Luckily for us, because of what's happening in the Bible, this is not uh, a question where we just choose our own adventure. Jesus actually shares this with us. So in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, where we're going to be the next several weeks, there are seven letters to seven churches these letters to these churches were actual letters to actual cities, to actual churches um, in, in the first century. Uh, they were influential cities and they were influential churches. And Jesus is speaking to them uh, in ways that will benefit all churches across all time. Because what he's saying to them, addressing them in their situation, they were delivered as a bundle so that all the churches would have read the letters to the churches, not just the letter to their church. And they would have learned from the different letters across, across the community. And so um, they're even valuable for us, as this is the living word of God, even speaking into this moment. So what Jesus is saying to the churches in the first century bears weight on us today. And so we're jumping in to the second letter, the letter to Smyrna, uh, is, is the letter we'll be jumping into today. It's uh, verses 8 through 11. I want to begin today by just reading this passage. Uh, the words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. And then uh, after that, I'll pray and we'll jump in from there. You up for it? Okay, good. All right, here we go. Uh, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8, the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us over the next 30 minutes. Um, I pray that you would help us understand your word. Jesus, we come trembling before your word today. Um, We know that you have all authority. We know that your word is perfect. We know that your word brings life. We know that your word builds the church, sustains the church, and nourishes the church. And so for all the different places that um, we're coming in the room today, I pray that you would meet us in those places Your word is living, it's active, and it's able to um, meet us in the exact place we need to be spoken to, addressed, and formed. And so, Jesus, this is your moment. Protect us from the evil one. Holy Spirit, lift us to Jesus. Father, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, everyone likes, everyone likes a happily ever after story, don't we? 
I mean, everyone likes this. I always look for these common, these common moments where we all have something together in the room. And this is one of those places. All of us like a happily ever after story. Even the person in the room today who would say, not me, I'm jaded, I'm cynical. I've realized that those things aren't even real. At some level you go, yeah, but I wish they were, <laughs> right? Like everyone wants a happily ever after story. No one wants the story miserable and alone ever after. Like no one is looking for that story. And this is the world I live in right now as a dad of four young kids. So everything in my house is happily ever after. This is every book we read. This is every movie we watch. This is every little show we watch. Everything is happily ever after. Right now, my kids are in love with those old school uh, chipmunk movies, uh, which is awesome. I kind of love going back to my own roots. So we're watching chipmunks. And so they're, they're hanging on the edge, like at that point of conflict in the show, like, oh no, the chipmunks have been separated from Dave Seville. What are, gonna, what are we gonna do? And they're worried about the little chipmunks. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, don't worry. This movie is not going to have furry little chipmunks hurt, right? It's going to be happily ever after and chipmunks will flourish forever, right? Like that's what's, that's what's happening. And so we love these kinds of stories. We're, we're sort of formed into this. We, our own desires kind of drive toward this. This is what's behind all the things that we feel in the ways that we live our lives. So he, here's what I mean. Every one of us have one of those places where we go, if I could just have that, if I could just get there, if I could just get to this place in my life, then, then I will be really happy. So we do this in a variety of ways. For some of us, it's the desire to be married, right? If, if I could just find that one, if I could just find Mr. Right, if I could just find that perfect wife, then, then I will be happy. If I could just get that certain job or have that career trajectory, if I could have that promotion, if I could find that certain kind of house, you drive through the neighborhood and you're going, man, I wonder if I bet everyone who lives in this neighborhood has the best life ever, right? We've all driven through those neighborhoods and thought, man, they don't have life like mine. Their coffee's always perfect. Their eggs are always just how they wanted them. Their marriages are just wonderful, right? We, we think that. It's like, if I could just get there, if I could just have that then, and then I would be happy. But here's what I've seen in my life. Whether it's getting married, having kids, becoming a pastor, whether it's dealing with the insecurities, that if I, if I just deal with these insecurities in my life, if I just deal with the hurt I had of not having a dad, if I just deal with some of these things, then, then I'll be happy and everything will be better. But what I've found is whatever the addition I've added to my life, whatever acquisition, whatever development, there, there are for sure joys with marriage and kids and, and growth and moving forward. There's blessings with all of that. But here's what I've also found. There's challenges with those things too, right? There's challenges and anxieties and temptations. And it's not that you get rid of the old anxieties and old challenges and old temptations. Very often what happens is as you add things to your life, you keep those old temptations and those old anxieties, you just add other, other new ones to them, right? And so now just temptations and anxieties and challenge compound as the years move forward. But in our heavily, happily ever after culture, on a whole, you and I don't know how to deal very well with things like suffering and loss. Because our culture is so full of happily ever after, what we would rather do is just pull out our, uh, our, our, our cell phones, pull out our devices and just go, I'm gonna scour the app store because certainly there's an app that can take care of that. Mute the pain, mute the conflict, mute the suffering, mute the loss, and I don't have to deal with it. This app will give me happily ever after, Right? Like, we don't believe that, but, but we act that way. We distract ourselves that way. We don't deal with this. And so here's what I want to say to this. It's not that our desires for happily ever after are bad. They're for sure not bad, right? 
Jesus and his kingdom is a happily ever after. When he blows that trumpet and the, and the curtain closes, like it's going to be his kingdom with no sorrow, no mourning, no sickness, death swallowed forever. It is happily ever after with Jesus, right? It's not a bad desire to have. But all too often in the in-between where we currently live, we overlook pain, we overlook sorrow, we overlook suffering and loss, just hoping to get past them. But it's there that Jesus is actually trying to grow us and deepen us and form us and give us something. Let me say it this way. Give us something that will last us a lot longer after relief is no longer needed, right? Because pain and sorrow and dark times, even if they last 50 years, it doesn't compare to the billions and trillions of living in uninterrupted presence with Jesus, right? And so he's trying to form us there and give us something that will carry with us long after relief is no longer needed. And that's what's happening at the church at Smyrna. That's what's happening in the letter we just read. Jesus is forming this church. He's shaping this church. And we're gonna find them caught up in circumstances that they would rather not be involved with. That they would rather not be involved with. So there's three questions that are gonna move us through our, our, our time today in the scriptures. There's three questions I want us to get after. The first question is this. What is Jesus saying to Smyrna? Like, what is Jesus saying to this church? I want us to look at this letter again and just go, what is he saying to them? The second thing is, so then what does that mean for us? Second question is, what does this mean for us? Because it, it has implications deeply for us. And the third question I want us to get after is, so then what do we do? What, what did this mean for them? What is he saying to them? What is he saying to us? And then, and then what do we do? Those are the three questions I want us to get after today. So look back at verse eight. What is Jesus saying to this church? It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I say, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, that they are a synagogue of Satan. He says, don't fear what you are about to suffer, but the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation, but be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this passage, to say the least. Like, that's a massive understatement. There's stuff here about uh, Satan throwing people into prison, some people who are faking being Jewish, uh, and then we're told not to fear in the midst of all of that. There's a ton going on in this passage. But before we jump into what's going on, I want, I want you to imagine something with me for a second. Again, this was a real church receiving this real short memo from Jesus, Right? So take yourself out of what you already know about what we've just read and, and out of what you um, know about the fact that this is not us and imagine yourself if you are a Christian in Smyrna in the first century and you show up to church one Sunday and again, this is a place of massive persecution. Christians are being drugged from their homes. Christians are being killed for their faith. Uh, if, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, um, then, then there's massive consequences for this. So this church is meeting by candlelight, this church is meeting in a discreet place so as not to be found by Roman guards. They gather, their pastor stands up, and instead of reading a passage of scripture from the Old Testament and then preaching on how Jesus fulfills it or reading some other early New Testament writing, he says, today is a little different. The apostle John has received a word from Jesus directly for our church, and he reads this letter. This is the sermon that morning, right? Imagine that for a second. Imagine you're reading this letter. This is the sermon today. Jesus has a word for our church. And around you, there used to be chairs filled 
by other people who aren't there anymore because either Roman persecution was too much and they caved underneath it, or they've been arrested, they've been imprisoned, or they've been executed. And so you're reading this letter and you hear things like, Satan's about to throw some of you into prison. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but don't fear any of that stuff. Imagine that for a second. Now, how would you feel as a Smyrna Christian hearing that letter that Sunday morning? Would you feel encouraged by that? Would you feel anchored by that? Or would you feel like, wait a second, I don't have any idea what you just said. Can I get a hold of that letter and reread it a few times? Because that's how I would probably feel. I got questions, elders, right? I would be, I'd be that guy. But I want you to notice, look at what Jesus says in this letter. Like, so, so, so put away your emotions for a second of how you think you might feel, and let's look at what Jesus says, because it's massively important. In verse eight, he addresses himself to the church as the one who is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. I started this thing, I'm gonna finish this thing, I have all authority. That's what it means when Jesus says first and last. I started this thing and I have the final verdict, first and last. And then he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. The, the literal Greek uh, uh, translation of that would read, the one who became dead and lived. I love that. Like what a proclamation of the power and the authority and the victory of Jesus. I became dead, right? But death can't hold down the maker of life. I have the keys to death and Hades, he says. And so he says, I became dead and I lived through it. And so listen up, church, I've got a word for you. Like all of a sudden it's like, if I started with that intro, ears are perked up, right? Like, let's go, what do you have to say? So here's what he says in verse nine. There's three things he points out about this church. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. We'll talk about that one, that's big. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. And then thirdly, he says, I know the slander that you're dealing with. Now, this is a different letter than last week. Last week was encouragement. I like, what, I like your theology. I like your endurance. I like your uh, good works, but you've left your first love. It was encouragement and then correction. This one is all encouragement, right? There's no correction in this letter. So I wanna get to the three things he points out. The first one, I know your tribulation. So this is a simple and profound statement by Jesus. He just says, I know your tribulation. I know the difficult time you're walking in. Like, I know the hard stuff that you're grappling with. I know that right now times are tough and that loved ones are being snuffed out by the enemy. And so this is an amazing statement. I want you to hear this from Jesus because he's not, this is not a pandering statement. He's not patting them on the head. He's not telling them, hey, I wish you would just get tougher and grow thicker skin. This persecution isn't that bad. What's wrong with you guys? This is him lovingly and affirmingly looking at his church, hey, looking to us, and he says, I know you. I know you. I know your tribulation. So if you're walking in today and you've actually got some suffering and some sorrow and some pain you're walking in, th this is what Jesus said, I know what you're walking in. When he says that, the translation is not just I know about you, like with knowledge, I can see you, but I'm apart from you. It's I know you and 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 I'm not leaving you, I'm with you. I'm with you. If you're walking in suffering today, know that Jesus, he sees you, he knows you. It's not unnoticed. He's eyes wide open and he's present there. First thing he says to this church is, I know your tribulation. The second thing he says 
as I know your poverty, but you are rich. Now let's talk about this one. The Christians in Smyrna were living in persecution in a way that their homes were being pillaged. The, the, the Romans first century uh, history says that they were stripping them of their license to have businesses in the market. So, so be, simply because they were Christians, they were being harassed by the Romans. If you're gonna bear the name of Jesus, you can't have means in this city. So the influences of their city were taking away aid and they had no influence in the city to get aid. They were actually a poor church. They, they were actually a poor church. They were impoverished. They were outcasted. But listen, Jesus says, but you're rich. But you're rich. Now, now when we hear that, if you're like me studying that this week, it almost feels like Jesus is just giving them a sentimental nod, right? Like, yeah, you're poor, but oh, if you could see, you're rich. And it almost feels like, thanks for nothing, Jesus. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't help me right now when I can't eat, right? You're poor, but you're rich. But I want you to hear when Jesus says this, this is not just a sentimental nod. What Jesus is saying is that church, in the midst of your suffering, though you're poor, listen, there's a depth of communion, a depth of soul that you have in your life with God that even if you had an infinite dollar amount in the bank account, it couldn't compensate for it. Your depth of soul makes you rich. And the reverse is true, right? The reverse is also true. There's a way in which you could possess a dollar amount in the bank account that though it would make you feel a kind of comfort, it would also cause a blindness over you that would not allow you to see the shallowness and poverty of your soul. Just because dollar amounts are in the bank account doesn't mean your soul is rich. And so he's saying, church, suffering is happening, but there's a depth of soul, a depth of communion that's rolling forward that no dollar amount could compensate for or make a difference with. And so when Jesus says this, I want you to hear, he's not saying that riches are bad. Like he's not saying that rich people are, are, are off in this. And he's also not trying to make light of poverty. But what Jesus is doing is he's putting money in perspective and he's showing us the wealth of the gospel. Let me say it this way. When Revelation 19, if we were to roll forward from Revelation 2 to Revelation 19, and Jesus returns to gather up his church and he comes riding in on the white horse with tattoos on his legs, the scriptures say, King of kings, Lord of lords, with a warrior king presence on the white horse. When Jesus returns like that, it's not gonna matter what kind of clothes you're wearing. When Jesus returns like that, it's not gonna matter what kind of car you're driving. Your car doesn't matter. He's on a white, awesome horse. When Jesus returns like that, it's not gonna matter what kind of neighborhood or house you live in. When Jesus returns like that, none of those things matter. And that matters because what matters on that day for us as Christians helps us understand what actually matters today because we are people who live in light of that day. So what matters on that day matters, us, matters to us today because that's where we're headed, right? And so he's putting in perspective money. So the beauty of the gospel is this, is that it makes the poor man wealthy, listen, it makes the poor man wealthy, but it also shows the wealthy where true wealth is really found. That's the beauty of the gospel. It makes the poor man rich, and it shows the rich 
what true wealth really looks like. So in the kingdom of God, the successful doctor and the hotel maid and the repentant convict all have a common status before Jesus. I gotta say that one again, right? Like the successful doctor and the hotel maid and the repentant convict all have a common status before Jesus. In the kingdom of God, there's only one status, co-heir with Christ, right? And so Jesus says to the suffering church, I know you are poor, but you are rich. Notice the third thing he says to him. So he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. The third thing he says, look back at verses nine and 10. He says, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. And do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so the Jewish community in Smyrna were selling out Christians to the Romans for punishments and killings. So the Romans hated Christians because they wouldn't bow to Caesar. The Jews hated Christians because they were a threat to their heritage and the authority they felt like they walked in. And so the Jews were selling Christians out to Rome all the time for punishments and for killings. And this is why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They were doing the work of the enemy. And so when Jesus says this, I think it's important for us to hear a passing comment. This is not anti-Semitic talk. Like he's not actually um, speaking less of Jewish people. And the reason he says that though they claim to be Jewish and are not, the reason he pulls that Jewish title off of them has nothing to do with race, but he says they don't recognize the Jewish king, me, Jesus, right? They don't recognize Jesus, the Jewish king. So he says, they're actually not with me as much as they say they are. And so when we read this passage, there is no mistaking, Jesus is making no mistake who the real enemy is in this passage. It's not Rome. He says nothing about Rome. And though he mentions the Jews, the Jews aren't the enemy. And so it translates for our culture, the enemy is not ISIS. That's not the enemy. The enemy is not liberal politics or conservative politics, wherever you land. Politics are not the enemy. The enemy is really clear. It's Satan. Ephesians chapter six says it this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our real enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a real enemy who seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy what's happening in God's purposes with God's people. But Jesus assures us in this passage, hey, don't fear what's about to happen. So he says, Satan's gonna throw some of you into prison. These people are trying to, to partner and co-opt the enemy's mission. But listen, don't fear what's about to happen. He says, be faithful unto death. I'm the one who calls the shots. Jesus is saying, I've defeated Satan. Remember, I'm the first and the last. I became dead and lived. I call the shots. I hold Satan on a leash. What's the worst Smyrna can do to you? The worst Smyrna can do to you is throw you in prison and kill you. Like that's the worst that can, let's just be honest about it. But what Jesus is saying, newsflash, I'm a resurrected king who sets the captives free and I empty the graves of my martyrs and I give them a kingdom, right? I give them a kingdom. And so he says, don't fear any of this. 
I died, but I've also come to life. Now, we'll step back. This is what he's saying to the church. This is his letter to this. So, encouraging letter. (laughs) Hey, good job, Smyrna. You're awesome at suffering. Keep it up. Oh, man, why didn't I get the letter to Ephesus? I like that letter better, right? Like, I'm glad we live in 2018 and we get to benefit from all the letters. But here's the thing. This letter actually does have massive meaning for you and I, and it's more than just, wow, can we be thankful we're not Smyrna? Like, that's not the meaning of this. The meaning of this is huge, especially since we live in a first world country. And so here's what I want to show you the meaning for us. I want to show you what Jesus says and what he doesn't say, and it'll drop on us. So notice what he says. Go back to verse 10. He says this. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. We love the don't fear piece, right? <laughs> we love that. In fact, that's the, that's the most repeated command in all of the Bible. The most repeated command in all of the Bible, what God wants his people to know is don't be afraid. Isn't that amazing? The most repeated command in all the Bible. He says, but don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. We wish that said, don't be afraid. You're not actually gonna suffer. He says, but don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. So notice what he doesn't say. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. Nothing's gonna happen to you. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. I'm gonna take this away and it'll be over tomorrow and you'll forget it ever happened. He doesn't say, don't be afraid. This will get easier in just a couple of months. The Jews got to work it out of their system. Rome has to get over themselves and then just hunker down and it'll finally happen two months from now and we'll be good. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't take any sting out of suffering. He does the opposite. He ensures them it's gonna happen and it might get worse. Okay, He doesn't say anything about suffering going away. And it's passages like this one. I'm just going to be honest this morning. It's passages like this one that make me really angry at prosperity teaching. Really angry. The kind of teaching that says God's whole mission is just to make you healthy, wealthy, and give you your best life now. Like the whole reason that God sent his son was to give you wealth and wellness. That is garbage, garbage, right? It makes, it makes a mockery of Jesus and it, it decreases the beauty of his holiness and grace. Like, I don't, know, I don't know what prosperity teachers do when they roll open to Revelation 2. Like, I don't know what they do. You have two options. If you're gonna keep teaching health, wealth, and prosperity, it's either put a blindfold on when Revelation 2 happens or just claim ignorance. Because like that kind of teaching, what do you say to Smyrna? Just believe more, Smyrna. Just have more faith. I think they have way more faith than any prosperity teacher has. They're enduring suffering for Jesus, right? But here's the thing. The danger isn't so much prosperity teachers. We could talk about that for a while. That's not so much the danger for us. The danger for us is the fact that there is a prosperity believer that lives inside of you and me. 
And we may not turn on TBN, and we may not prescribe to those teachings, but there's still a part of you and me that prescribes to that prosperity teaching. You say, what do you mean? It shows up like this. Those moments where what you really have faith in God for is just to give you what you want. Right? So that you have this view of Jesus like he's your lucky rabbit's foot, like he's your cosmic bellboy out to go run your errands to give you the best life now. Right? So even though we can mock prosperity teaching, there's still a prosperity believer inside of all of us, and that's, that's the more danger. So our predominant practice isn't to look to Jesus to just get more of him and bear faithful witness to him, whatever comes our way. In fact, what often happens for most of us, more often than we want to admit, that our gaze toward Jesus is just simply caught up in asking him, give me what I want. Give me what I want. And so here's the question I want to ask. Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Do you want the kingdom of Jesus, the reign of Jesus, or do you just want what you want, and if you think Jesus can get it for you, you'll play the game? Right? Like, that's a, that's a, that's an, a, a crisis of faith kind of question that we have to get to the bottom of. Do you want Jesus, or do you just want your stuff, and you hope Jesus will be the guy who can help you out with magic powers? So the question we have to answer we kind of wrap this up is, so what was the hope for Smyrna? Because when I read this letter, you go, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope in that, right? Like I was hoping for a cheerful sermon today. I was hoping for Jesus calling today, right? Like what was the, what's the thing? What's the prize for Smyrna? That's a, that's a big question we've got to answer. And the answer to that question is huge. And here's why. Because how you and I respond in the midst of conflict how you and I respond when we are threatened to have comforts taken away and we respond in a certain way toward God, it shows us in that moment what's really in our heart toward God. When the threat of your comforts to be taken away happens, it shows what's really in your heart toward God. And so what was the prize? What was the hope? For the Christians at Smyrna, their prize, their hope was just, Jesus, give me more of you. Give me more of you. And, and their hope and their prize was just to honor him as Lord, whatever would possibly come, just to make him happy. If suffering has to keep happening, then Jesus, I will try to obey your words. Don't fear that they're about to be suffering and some are gonna get thrown into prison. I'll try to trust you there, but I just want more of you. That was their prize. And so let me make the gospel real tight. The good news of the gospel is not Jesus, if you look to him, will take you away from pain and sorrow and suffering. That's not the good news of Jesus. That's prosperity garbage. The good news of Jesus is this. I'm not sure what's gonna come for you, but I will be enough for you. I will be enough for you and I will not leave you. And when suffering comes, I'll give you more of myself. Through death and resurrection, you get the forgiveness of sins, and that means you get the presence of God through his Holy Spirit, the blessing of the Father in the Son of God to say, whatever comes, I will be enough, I will never leave, and I will give you more, whatever happens. That's the good news of Jesus. No other worldview can hold suffering like that. No other worldview holds suffering like that. No other worldview knows what to do with suffering. 
Because Jesus endured penultimate suffering. And on the other side, when it looked like he lost, he won. He became dead and lived. And so I gotta, I gotta be honest. I gotta step back from the sermon for a second and just be honest with you. As we wrap up today, this has been really hard for me all week long. This has been really hard for me. Like, on the one hand, prepping this sermon exposed so many areas in my life where Jesus is just window dressing for me. That's a hard confession to say out loud, but the areas of my life where he's just window dressing, that the real feast of my life is in my safety, is in my comforts, is in my family and the way we try to scurry around to live an Instagrammable life, you know? Like that's where my real feast is. And here's the thing, I'm not saying that safety or comforts or your family or Instagram are bad things. They're not, they're not bad things, they're great. But here's the real confession, right? Like Jesus is not my handmaiden to help me achieve my self-created fantasy life. That's not what Jesus is. And so often I make him out to be that. Like what he's really there for is just to be my handmaiden to give me my best life now. And the thing I feared, I'm gonna be honest, the thing I feared last night when I went to bed about preaching this today is that I would stand up here and try to be faithful to God's word and sound like a patriot for the kingdom of God and then nothing would change in my life that I would just stay the same. So let me say it this way. None of this matters to talk this way and then not be transformed and just say, I want more of Jesus. None of this matters. None of this matters to come and to agree with this or for me to say this and then to run home as fast as I can to put on soft pants and take a nap and pretend like it never happened. Like the Christians at Smyrna knew there was something at stake and it's also true for us, right? And so God didn't send his son. God didn't send his son to spill his blood for our sins and suffer under the weight of all of his wrath just so that we could find our real pleasure somewhere else. That stings me, but that's true. God didn't send his son and cause him to bleed out so that we could have forgiveness just to find, just to find bliss somewhere else. And so here's what I want for us as a church as we're being shaped in this series. I want us to really be a peculiar people who consider the loss of all things that we might have more Jesus. Who we consider the loss of everything to make him more famous in our city and among the nations if that's what it would mean. I want that for us. I want us to be Jesus freaks. Not Jesus weirdos, but just all in on Jesus. Just all in. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so what do we do from here? How do we move forward? Here's five quick things and we'll be done. Number one, if you're taking notes, what do you do with this? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Here's what I mean. This week, ask Jesus to make you honest. And in the honesty, go, where in my life Am I clinging to greater pleasures than you? Where are you just an add-on, Jesus? Ask him to make you honest. N- number two, is there anything about the way you live out your faith that would ever cost you anything? Application. Is there anything about the way you live out your faith that would cost you anything? Cost you reputation, cost you friends, cost you a job promotion, not because you're being a Christian jerk, but because you're just living out your faith 
and that can be offensive to those who don't share it. There's a couple of verses I want to share with you. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So we love Jeremiah 29, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Promise. This is also a promise. This is also a promise. 1 Peter 4, 12-14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Discipleship ought to cost us something. Number three application is some of you are actually walking in today under suffering. Suffering illness, suffering conflict, suffering loss. Some of you are suffering the active kind of suffering where you're being persecuted for having walked as an honest disciple. However you might be suffering today, don't just wish it away. Ask God, how would you be glorified in this? How could I make much of you? Sure, Jesus looks good when he gives you a BMW, but it's also true Jesus looks really good when in the midst of sorrow, his people still say, and my Lord is still good. He looks beautiful in that day. Number four, don't compromise. The blessing of the church at Smyrna is they wouldn't settle for status quo. They knew suffering was coming. It would have been easier to blend in. They said, I'm not gonna sell him cheap. I'm not gonna sell him cheap. Here's the thing, church. Don't, here's the, here's the way you do warfare against my fear. The way I'm doing warfare, I call you into it with me, right? Is I fear that I would believe this, say this, but then live no different. The way you do warfare is don't rest until your soul is happy in Jesus. Don't rest. Ask God for war against all those places of laziness in Christ, right? Don't rest until you're happy in Jesus. Last, and we're done, Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted church. So, so we're here today in a beautiful, ornate cathedral, and you let me speak freely for 35 minutes, and we get to worship with no fear of anything. Many believers around the world, most believers around the world do not have this privilege. They are in fear, and they're being driven out, and they're being persecuted and executed, right? Sometimes we think that persecution happened in the early, early church? No, 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 no. It's happening more today than it's ever happened in the history of the world. You can go to opendoorsusa.com. It's, a, it's an organization that works specifically among the persecuted peoples of the world. And I mean, you can read some stuff there. We'll be praying for persecuted Christians in our community groups this week. Pray for the persecuted church. I want to end by reading this passage to you from 1 Peter chapter 4. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 4, or actually chapter 5, sorry. Um, oh, come on, get there. There we go. 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this. It says, Be sober-minded and be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a warring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Pray for the persecuted church who have sufferings around the world.